Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, Halima. Hi, Ioni. And hello to the listeners. Welcome to the Polyester Podcast. I'm Ioni. And I'm the founding editor-in-chief of Polyester and the author of Poor Little Sick Girls. And I'm Halima, the community editor of Polyester Scene and the co-host of the Polyester Podcast. This is the Sleepover Club, a feminist pop culture podcast we pull apart the hashtag discourse in the hope of making some sense of it all. Before we get started, please like, rate, review and subscribe. Do we have any reviews to read out this week, Ayuni? We absolutely do, Halima. So, 10 out of 10, 5 stars. Thank you for being so intersectional. I love how much you include class in your conversations where I feel like it is so often left out of the conversation. Great, unique topics has been very nice to listen to from Kevin James Jorts in Canada. Oh, lovely. International. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah. Nice. (laughs) What are we talking about this week, Ioni? I think you should tell us, Halima. This week, I'm interviewing Ioni Gamble about her debut book, Poor Little Sick Girls. I had the pleasure of reading over the weekend and I have formulated some thoughts and some questions about it. Okay. First of all, congratulations, Ioni. It is a really brilliant book. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Thanks, Halima. I'm getting so emotional. <laughs> yeah. You're such a cow. <laughs> but honestly, congrats. You did a fantastic job. Thank you. Okay. First and foremost, can yeah. you tell us a little bit about what Poor Little Sick Girls is about for Ooh, those who do not know? I'm, I'm so sorry. bad. I know you hate this question. I'm so bad at it. Okay. Poor Little Sick Girls is a collection of essays that looks at contemporary feminism, social media, the internet and other facets of social politics through the lens of me having chronic illness. Amazing. Thank you. My first question, like this first set of questions are kind of about the writing process. Okay. And I wondered what was the hardest thing about writing Poor Little Sick Girls and what was the most enjoyable thing about writing it? Um, The hardest thing was writing it. (laughs) (laughs) It was really hard. I didn't like it. Um, it feels like such a like stupid, like privileged position to be like, wah, wah, I got to write a book. It's so hard. Um, but I definitely found it really challenging just to write that much stuff. <laughs> See, I'm obviously a fucking bimbo. So how did I write a book? I don't know. Yeah, it was just really difficult in many ways. But something that I really loved about it was the research part of it. So I feel like whenever I got in a kind of like a slump, about the writing I would just be able to go to research and then that would like make me feel like I was still being productive but not actually having to put my thoughts down so that was good good yeah yes thank you um another question I have is about the introduction of the book so in the introduction of your book you mentioned that the fact that you have always annoyingly known 
who you were meant to be. Yeah. And you say, and I quote, judging about my future self was a far more effective way, like form of escapism than any book or film would allow me. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know where that came from. Not to girl boss you. Yeah, that's a slur. <laughs> <laughs> but it's clear that you've always had a certain drive to achieve something bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think it's actually quite a working class mentality. But I wanted to know if you could explain where that drive came from, because it's clear you had it from a very young age. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like it, it just happened. Like, I feel like I always thought I had to have a plan. I think that was something that my mum was very uh influential on me, like, doing, if that makes sense. Like, not in a weird, like, pushy way. Like, she wouldn't really care what I got in school or, like, any of this sort of thing. But to know what I wanted to do was always, like, really important to her, I think, and to me. Like, I remember in year... Eight. I don't know why you have fucking careers days in year eight, which is when you're 13 for international listeners. Oh, it must have been year nine because I think it was when you decide what to do for your GCSEs. Yeah. Um, so when you're like 14. And I remember my mum being like, she should be a journalist. Blah, blah, blah. And I, I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. Um, and then I got into the idea. Well, kind of like basically when I was in year 10, they make you start looking at unis. Which, it's just so insane. Like... <laughs> the schooling system here that you're meant to know what you want to do when you're 15 but I basically found this course which was called like fashion promotion or whatever and I ended up doing fashion journalism but they're very similar like fashion promotion is basically like styling or marketing or whatever and I was like I'm gonna do that course and I'm gonna go to that uni and then I did that so I feel like it's just something I've always known in some way that I want to like I wanted to be doing what I'm doing now which I'm very lucky for and it started with just being like I'm gonna go to Oxford and then I'm gonna write Harry Potter like JK Rowling when I was like six obviously I don't want to be like her anymore (laughs) (laughs) cancelled we hate her but yeah I do think it's like a working class mentality in a way in a way like I feel like it probably swings both side of the class spectrum like because if you're really upper class then there's more certainty like you know what school you want to go you're gonna go to you know like what uni course you're probably gonna do probably because it's probably gonna be at Oxbridge but yeah, I feel like having a clear set of goals was always really important to me. Well, I remember I had a careers day as well when I was in like year nine or year 10. And I remember telling the man who like, I don't know what he was doing, but he asked me what I wanted to do when I was older. And I said, I wanted to be in journalism. And he goes, it's a dying industry. Ah! You should never go into it. And I was like, oh, okay. He said that? Yeah. But what was his job? I have no fucking clue. I can't remember. <laughs> he was awful though. And I was a bit like, oh, okay. Maybe let me rethink this whole thing. Yeah, people are quite horrible. People are crazy. But I think you're right. Like, I think it definitely is probably a thing that um, goes beyond class. I think both sets of people probably have this thing. But I always think that working class people, because even I remember I used to do the same thing. I used to daydream about like what my life would be like as a way of like thinking beyond what I had now. If yeah. that made sense. It kind of just got me through the fact that I had very little yeah I think that's definitely a thing whereas like before and I think the word like dream is quite central to that so where like we say it's daydreaming or whatever like probably upper for upper class people it's like expectation if that makes sense yeah so yeah we're here now (laughs) (laughs) we made it we made it (laughs) and you oh my god okay so you later go on to talk about your Crohn's diagnosis in that in the introduction and how piece by piece the vision you conjured up about your adult life, like what your adult life would look like, began to fall apart. Mm. And, you know, I know you and I know that you don't like when things don't go as planned. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so I wondered, how did you handle that when you were younger? Um, a lot. I think with just like um, a 
ignoring it and ignorance like i didn't really think it would be bad and that it would change anything so i was quite successful in that in ignoring it through uni i managed to still do all the things i wanted to do for my course and like i probably went a bit above and beyond like who fucking cares if you go to uni in first year but i like took it really seriously and then it was kind of when i got because obviously at uni you have a certain amount of a cushion around you anyway like it's not really real life is it um not to disrespect anyone that's at uni um but it's been 10 years now and then when you have a job and these people don't really have a responsibility or duty of care towards you in any way that was kind of when I realized that um I couldn't really operate in the world in a way that I wanted to because my body wouldn't let me a and like b the people around me in a professional setting wouldn't be accommodating to the things that I needed in order to make it work Mm -hmm. it's funny that you mentioned that you ignored it because we were in the car this morning and Annie's like (laughs) Annie's not feeling well at the minute Annie goes something's wrong in my stomach but I'm not dealing with it until after my big lunch (laughs) (laughs) so she used the same (laughs) oh god okay in the tragic and gorgeous history of sick girls you speak about how society treats the sick and disabled and you bring up an important topic about the benefits of speaking up about your illness or keeping it a secret which mm. I found really interesting and I think that we're speaking about this more and more especially after the deaths of Virgil Abloh and Shadow Bozeman because mm. they both kept their illnesses a secret um, and in the book you wrote that you once thought that the simple act of talking would help us progress into a more equal society. We'll speak about this in the last episode. Listen to the last episode if you haven't listened to it. Yeah. But now you don't think that's the case. Why do you no longer kind of subscribe to this like idea of like talk politics? Because it doesn't work. <laughs> like, I feel like it's been like a decade now. No. Mm. And it's a hard one because... What did we say? I don't know if I was saying this on this podcast or something else because I've been having to talk too much recently. But it's like, essentially when we speak on the internet, we're always catering to like the gays that we're not, for example, at the moment, which I think is a problem. So for example, you can say like, oh, I'm unwell. So I want to speak about being unwell to provide awareness to other unwell people. But really you have to frame that for people that are not sick or are not disabled because that's the majority of people that are going to look at that content and it provides this kind of like voyeuristic understanding that isn't a real understanding like these people can feel like they're like woke or whatever because they follow like five of whatever marginalization on instagram but then there's none of the practical tools that will help them be more understanding in their life or like they'll still like yeah kick someone out of a job for being unwell or like judge someone for whatever like you know judge a fat person for being fat judge like all these different things and I think it's really interesting the kind of like secret thing around Virgil and um Chadwick because like it was Chadwick wasn't it that got like loads of shit when he was like looking like unwell and you can see that kind of also happen now with um Pete Davidson who also has Crohn's like people always being like oh he looks so like gone or he looks like gray or like whatever and that's like actually a thing of having Crohn's like when you're malnourished whatever and I think it's kind of a fucked if you do fucked if you don't situation which I write in the book it's like you kind of like choose between being seen um and like potentially having to deal with more shit but trying to feel understood or you keep it a secret and like probably have an easier life at the end of the day like I know that's a not a very um hopeful answer but 
that's like where we're at at the moment and then it's so interesting especially with those like two people being so high profile because the way we frame their illness um being like oh they trudged through like they're inspirational because they hid it like in some weird way it's like that's the narrative like they're inspirational because they were sick and they did so much and like blah 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 blah. it's not as if that's all untrue but it's like under what circumstances do we make like you know they're they're both like high profile black men feel the need that they have to hide this thing about themselves that yeah ultimately now they're not here do you Mm -hmm. know what i mean yeah for sure what was i gonna say you because obviously this is quite a a dramatic switch to thinking that it's important to speak and then obviously questioning that was it something that specifically happened that made you think actually this doesn't fucking work i think it's more just like a series of small things over time and like i suppose just like the difference in how you position yourself in the world because like we were kind of talking about last week like when you're a young adult and you have loads and loads of confidence and you feel like you can just kind of tackle anything head on um and in a way I think that also comes from like that confidence comes from the assumption that it's other people's responsibility to deal with your shit in that like and like accept it and have good reactions to you so I remember like when I came back from hospital the first time I was in hospital like my I was in first year of uni and my housemate at uni just literally never spoke to me again like ever (laughs) like not one word passed her lips towards me it was so strange and I suppose it was just like more and more that's like quite an extreme thing that sounds extreme but it's something that would happen to me in a thousand of different ways like as I move through adulthood like small reactions or this and it's not that I would hide actively hide my Crohn's disease but whereas before I would like declare it I then became like much more hesitant to be that upfront with people if they were like new or a colleague or like whatever do you know what I mean yeah I feel like, but how do you, I mean, I don't know, how do you tackle that? Because obviously it's weird because the idea in that society now is that you shouldn't have to be silent about those things, but it's actually, it seems to be the easier option for the person who is dealing with that to keep it to themselves. I think it's just the like, the girls that get it, get it, and the girls that don't, don't. Like, I also think it's um, a problem now because like we see, I think it's also another reason why we see the kind of, discourse and those who lead it the type of people that do that like they're the type of people that can afford to be ostracized so like they're rich or they're like on the like higher end of the privileged section section whatever in like some ways so we have this kind of um imbalance of like especially within illness um but in like everything like literally everything like plus size activism like race activism a lot of the time where it's dominated by upper classes because they're the people that have like time resources energy and can like afford not to lose they can afford to lose income or whatever because people still take them seriously for other reasons Mm -hmm. so i think it's still important to talk about things and i think especially be balanced in this way when you talk and like actually think about it and not just throw stuff out there because i do think we are seeing a rise in illness discourse online that's very veered towards like the self-diagnosis and like things like this and I don't think that's meaningful because like at the end of the day if you're throwing up like stories about feeling sick all the time and like I just feel like it's a short validation thing like similar to with mental health like posting a crying story it makes you feel good in the moment but then people can turn that back on you and I don't think we're still at that place where we know 
what a good approach forward is if that makes sense yeah this links to a question i was thinking about actually because you're quite honest in the book about things to do with your illness and like things people would think hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Are gross, like the yeah. idea that whenever you're in a room or in a place, you're always thinking, where's the nearest toilet yeah. in case I need to use the toilet? Or yeah. the idea that you could almost like shit yourself or yeah. whatever. So you're very honest about those things. Where, how did you balance like the private and what you would make public? So I think like when I came to writing the book, I basically didn't want to make it one of those feminist books that doesn't actually say what it wants it to, what you know the author is thinking. Like I feel like there's so many books that kind of tiptoe around issues or sugarcoat them or don't say things because it might have consequences elsewhere and like I am privileged enough in my position now to say what I want and like have been living with this long enough to know what I feel comfortable and uncomfortable with if that makes sense like so I'll talk about shitting myself but I won't talk about my sex life like you know we draw our own lines in this world but I was thinking about basically all the writing I love and like all the books I've really enjoyed that kind of whether they intersect with illness or not and especially like Viv Albertine both of her books which are Clothes Music Boys and To Throw Away Unopened and that book her first book basically opens with a big like monologue they're both autobiographical about how she's like never gotten the appeal of wanking it doesn't work for her and I feel like you have to kind of make these you have to make these decisions as to whether you're going to be honest or not. And I don't really see the point of writing memoir if you're not going to be honest and truthful because, and like over the top, because we don't have enough of like this kind of messiness of women's experiences. And at the end of the day, you can't write about an illness that makes you shit yourself. If you're not going to say you shit yourself, what's the point? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In the same chapter, you mention that when you're first diagnosed with Crohn's, you would seek some sort of like to see representation of who else had Crohn's and you found out that JFK and Kurt Cobain both had Crohn's Mm -hmm. so I need to know JFK smash or pass (laughs) pass (laughs) (laughs) why 
I know. I'm not gonna fuck any politicians. <laughs> I was thinking. I thought you were gonna say smash. Really? Yeah. No, no. no I would also pass. Yeah. Kirk Cobain smash or pass? Uh, pass probably still. As well. Really? Yeah. That's so interesting. Okay. You heard it here first, folks. Well, you know, apparently also Kurt Cobain was into like scat, scatting, scat play. Like, what the fuck is that? Like p- shit play during sex. Oh, okay. <laughs> Gina Tonic told me this. I don't know if it's a rumor. <laughs> oh my god! Emma was just saying, "Oh, we should start rumors," and then I mentioned. <laughs> oh my god. Um, <laughs> but no, it's still passed. <laughs> I don't okay. like doing that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, in your book, Beyond Millennial Pink yeah. chapter, which is all about the commodification of feminism and the history of its commodification, mm-hmm. you write that you never imagined your adult self and your peers distancing themselves from the label of feminist, mm. but you can see that becoming, like, more and more becoming a reality. Um, this is obviously, this obviously has to do with the way feminism is being commodified. Mm. What do you think was the turning point for so many young women who were so proud of this label? Like, what do you think, why do you think they're distancing themselves from the label of feminist recently so i think overexposure probably and i think also seeing that basically nothing they thought was going to happen happened i know this is so like it's kind of stupid (laughs) like not stupid like but i feel like for example when a big turning point for me (laughs) was when a Ed Miliband lost like the 2016 election I can't remember what year it was and that 15 maybe and then B Brexit and then more recently obviously way more recently like the Roe vs Wade stuff and like all of these things basically and I I just kind of realized that all progress can be undone in some way and then obviously Trump as well like all these huge things have happened to us in our lifetime that we realized that any progress that can be made can be unmade and I never really considered that before that time if that makes sense like Brexit feels like such like a you know like a weak political thing to talk about now and it is but at the time it felt like (gasps) world's ending love um so I think people are sick of it basically because the response to it being actually really hard to not only like move the needle in terms of rights and politics and even just representation is this like fierce commodification of it, which we've seen mostly in representation, like whether that is through like female politicians or through like models or through whatever. We've just kind of seen these politics that we thought were radical become like the least, the most unradical thing ever. So I think that's why people are sick of it. But I am a firm believer in like trying to like never putting down the feminist label because it's important to keep fighting for the radical potential of it rather than rejecting it when you because you mentioned that you think it's overexposure could you Mm. expand on that what do you mean by overexposure um i suppose i mean like just literally you know you see feminism on t-shirts you see it on cushions you see it on the front of wellness journals you see it in pop songs like pop songs aren't about like heartbreak or sex anymore they're about like self-love and feminism just like all of these things like feminism is basically like so ingrained in our culture but it's not real feminism but okay female empowerment like whatever you want to call it like feminism light it's like so ingrained in everything and I think a natural reaction to that is to reject it because like once something becomes status quo it's not like cool anymore or whatever like I know that's such like a weird thing to say but it's like how Dorian Electra when they were on this podcast and I'm sure I bring it up all the time were basically saying that like why the far right is so successful is because the left is basically positioned as like normie culture now like 
like it you know like not being racist and not being fat phobic and all these things are like accepted as some things we should do so to rebel against that is to rebel towards like a more right-wing strain of thinking and we're going through this like phase of culture but you know it's like liberal culture not feminist culture that we need to rally against it's interesting because when you when i read like you saying that because you meant you do mention the overexposure thing in the book and i was thinking that that was something that in bell hooks's feminism is for everybody that's what she was advocating for like this overexposure of feminism um and it's interesting because i don't think she thought that with this over like with feminism really becoming the mainstream i don't think she thought that there would be a strong reaction or opposition to that from people who were feminists yeah. or like because again you're talking you're, it's not necessarily the kind of feminism that we want to see being overexposed because it, it is mainstream feminism it is like this um very whitewashed non-radical feminism that you see everywhere but i feel like she I, in the book she didn't write it but i don't think she saw that type of reaction to the overexposure of it because t- to her that was a good thing but I, I don't think it was necessarily this female empowerment self-love type thing if that makes sense yeah and i think it's also there's just this huge gap isn't there like there's a huge gap in what we're what we see and what we're told and then like for example our ability to advocate for ourselves or our communities like the the kind of like commodification of feminism hasn't actually left us any more capable of doing anything that is meaningful it's just left us like with the language i suppose you're right as well when you mention the things like brexit and trump and roe versus wade it, it like I, you've articulated it so well but the idea that all the things that we have fought for can literally be undone under mm-hmm. our political systems and i guess that's you know you don't think about that you think that okay we have it and it's done yeah but the fight isn't done but i don't know you're so right in that in that regard but and i and i was thinking about these the other day because i was like i'm just so depressed by everything with roe versus wade and stuff like that and I was like, I could, I could somehow see why people turn to disassociative feminism. Like, especially last week, I was in my depression era. But I was really like, oh, I can really see people. And even though I, I don't want to ever feel like that, because I don't think I'll ever drop the label of feminist. But I could feel it. I could feel just like, I felt like the, like, like this feeling of the world ending mm. and not knowing what to do. Cause you keep fighting and, and things just keep happening that aren't so, like, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough one. Yes, yeah, it's, it's not great news. No. Oh well. The last oh, well. question. <laughs> okay, so you importantly note that in this commodification chapter, um, beyond millennial pink, you importantly note that the commodification of feminism isn't anything new. The case study you use is the suffragettes and the fact that they sold their wares, silk scarves, tops, accessories, and bags, and they named them. They named these bags after different famous members, mm-hmm. and they elevated their members to celebrity status. You relate this back to our current movement's obsession with commodifying itself. However, don't you see this type of commodification as different than the one in our current society? I, I guess, like, because you're quite specific about the fact that this commodification is being used by corporations. And I was thinking when the suffragettes were doing it, weren't they doing it to advance their own, like, or push their own political project or maybe fund their own, I don't know, organizations? Because is it necessarily the same type of commodification? Yeah, it is. <laughs> because, like, um, you know, any number of these feminist influencers do the exact same thing. Their basic business model, like through like the influence, the feminist influencer thing, right? It's like, yeah, maybe you originally start like peddling other people's wares. <laughs> How many of those feminist influencers would then say, 
oh i do sponcon so i can advance my own practice whether that is like making feminist art or making feminist books or making feminist like videos or making feminist whatever it's the same but on a highly individualized level because then people write these and then instead of like you know a scarf or i mean it could also be t-shirts like anything but let's take like a book model how many authors would say like oh i'm writing this book so then i can like reinvest in my own feminist practice Mm. it's just not on a community level because we're so like hyper individualistic yeah i guess because i was thinking about this because i was like i don't know because i assume they weren't just selling it like just to I don't know, like, they weren't just selling it. I guess it's not this, I don't think it's necessarily the same as, like, a cor- corporation selling it when it comes to suffragettes, because I assume they needed to fund, like, the stuff that they were... Yeah, but then also, it's like, so the suffragettes did do this, yes. Uh-huh. They had, like, a headquarters that was, like, part shop, part, like, headquarters. But then Liberties, for example, added, like, a suffragette section to their magazine, and, like, it would be like a shopping page, like how to get the suffragette look. The same for Selfridges. So it became like this identity more than just like them selling bags, if that makes sense, to like self-fund. But even like, I feel like with them selling how, like how to get the, su- the suffragettes look, I feel like even that to some extent is them still trying to to sell their political project, right? But it wasn't the suffragettes and saying like liberties. The oh, shops the li- doing that. the shops or like suffragettes started doing that, like well, these department well, stores. Were, were suff- weren't suffragettes in support of the suffragettes, right? Yeah, you read that in the book. Was was any of that money going back to the suffragettes, or was no. it sta- it was staying with suffragettes? Yeah, of course. What? And like liberties would sell these uh, corsets that they'd market for protest corsets, like wow. that would be comfortable while protesting. But it's all like marketed towards women's lip. It wasn't like made in conjunction with women's lip. Wow, because you, I, I was really surprised when you wrote the fact that suffragettes were in support. Because you're you write in the beginning like you know this shop is actually quite white and middle class now. So yeah. it's surprising to to hear that their history was actually in support of. But suffragettes were white and middle class, like upper class. Of course, yeah. Like shops were basically in that moment like one of the only places women could go and gather Mm -hmm. so that's why there was such like successful like organizing tools Mm -hmm. so i think it's um you know like it's naive to dismiss the potential of using these things to our advantage but it's just like the who does it benefit yeah okay last question i gamble okay what do you want people to take away from Poor Little Sick Girls? I actually hate this question. Lol. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your thoughtful questions, but I hate this one. <laughs> I always ask it to other people, so now I'm like, I'm never asking anyone that question. It's the easiest way to end it off. I don't know how else to end this. No, it's a good question. I'm not criticizing <laughs> you. <laughs> um, it's just because I don't know. Mm-hmm. I suppose I just want people to like have the tools to like put why they feel uncomfortable into words. Like... And like have these argues arguments presented to them that there is a better way, and like especially with the like feminist feminist arguments in there that like we don't exist in a vacuum. Like we we are not just making our own history. This isn't the first time this has happened in terms of like a feminist lifespan of a movement. Like this has happened time and time again, but because it's our first time experiencing it, like our generation, we feel like it's unique to us. Whereas, yeah, I feel like there's a lot to learn from our past. And I also hope people, like, just like it. 
Nice, nice. Find it entertaining. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's all the questions I had for you. Thank you. Today. Well. Thank you, Ioni. What a growling. Oh, yeah. Um, should people buy the book as someone who has read it? I think you should absolutely buy the book. Get it for your mum, for your dad, for your nan, for your brother, for your sister. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I really enjoyed reading it. It made me think very critically, which I always love. So I highly recommend. In Halima's book corner, I give it 10 out of 10. Oh, thank you, Halima. You're welcome. Well, thank you for the lovely interview. Thank you for your time. We'll see you next week. Adios. Thank you to Rodrigo. Thank you to Rodrigo. We I'm love you. Us right now. Thank you to Olivia and to Gina and Gina, Charlotte, Eden, Gina again, <laughs> Hattie and Grace. And that's it. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.